Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Biblical scholar and civil rights activist Clarence Jordan once told a story about visiting an old friend and colleague from seminary. His friend was serving a growing wealthy church at the center of a large city. The congregation had just completed a capital campaign to remodel and expand its building, and Jordan's colleague was anxious to show off the completed project. As the man took Jordan on a tour of the impressive facility, he was careful to point out all of the innovations and conveniences the congregation had elected to include. Not a single expense had been spared. When they arrived in the sanctuary, Jordan's colleague was excited to note the impressive cross that was suspended over the chancel at the front of the space. That cross is 25 feet tall and handcrafted from the finest oak, the man said. It cost us almost $50,000. Clarence Jordan, ever ready with an insightful quip, responded, there was a time when Christians could get those for free. His retort left his colleague speechless and bemused, but it illustrates the point that Jesus makes in today's gospel reading. It's far too easy to become consumed with the things of religion, of religious tradition, instead of being transformed by the power of a living, vibrant relationship. Now, we've jumped over to John's gospel in the lectionary, and we'll mostly stay in John until we return to ordinary time after Pentecost. That's intentional on the part of the lectionary, as John provides us with an intense experience of Jesus' passion and resurrection and post-resurrection interactions. And we see that illustrated quite clearly in today's reading. Now, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so-called because they share a common view or way of telling the story of Jesus, all place the story of the cleansing of the temple at the very end of Jesus' ministry, in the final week of his life. For them, it's the climax of Jesus' conflict with the religious and political leaders in Jerusalem. John moves the story to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, as if to say quite pointedly that the antagonism between Jesus and the powers that be was there from the very start. It will define his ministry and determine his fate. Now, it seems like a strange story, especially for those of us who've grown up with the image of Jesus as the gentle, meek, and mild Savior. We're not used to seeing an angry Jesus who walks into the temple and throws what amounts to a temper tantrum. When we look at the situation in the temple, though, it's easy to understand why Jesus was upset. The temple was the center of religious life for the Jewish people. In the midst of occupation by a foreign power, it represented unity and fostered a sense of deep identity among a people struggling to survive the onslaught of Roman dominance. But it wasn't without competition. The Judaism of the first century was a faith in transition. 
Its roots were deep in the sacrificial system and ritual traditions of the Jerusalem temple, but years of exile and interaction with other religious and cultural traditions had brought challenge to Jerusalem as the center of Jewish life. The exile gave birth to the synagogue, that local gathering of devout Jews which provided comfort and connection to a dispersed people. The return and reconstruction of the temple didn't diminish the importance of the synagogue, but rather saw it become even more important in the life of local communities. And there had always been tension between northern and southern Jews, as evidenced by the breakup of the nation under Solomon's reign. But by the time of Jesus, that division was woven into the fabric of life. It was exacerbated by years of tension between those who remained during the exile and worshipped at Mount Gerizim, and those who returned who continued to insist that Jerusalem was the only acceptable place to worship the God of Israel. As more and more Gentiles flooded into Palestine under Roman governance, those who worshipped at Gerizim, the Samaritans, more readily embraced that diversity, while devout Jews whose spiritual life centered on the temple in Jerusalem found it much harder to embrace those different from them. In the context of this conflict, Jesus walks into the temple and drives out those who had set up shop there. Now, they'd been there from the start as the sacrificial system of the temple required animals for slaughter and offering. It made no sense for those coming from long distances to bring their own animals, so merchants provided what was needed for a modest price. They set up their stalls in the outer courts of the temple and did their business. Now, Jesus' act isn't just an act of anger at the merchants, though there is frustration there. It's more a rejection of the sacrificial system and the temple tradition as a whole. So much of that tradition was based on the ability of individuals and families to afford the animals necessary for sacrifice. In the tradition of the temple, their standing with God was determined by their ability to meet those requirements. Jesus rejects that idea entirely. God is not confined to spaces built by human hands, and God's blessings are not determined by one's financial resources. This is the culmination of years of frustration with the temple and the sacrificial system, not just on the part of Jesus, but the wider culture in which Jesus lived. What Jesus does is speak the emerging truth to which so many were becoming aware. His words, though, challenge the status quo and threaten the powers that be in Jerusalem. They depended upon the temple for their position, their privilege, their prosperity, and their power. Jesus' words and actions make clear that the entire system is on the brink of collapse. That's, of course, why the religious and political leaders strike back against Jesus. And they make clear that there's a price to be paid for what he's done. How dare this outsider question them? On what grounds does he dare oppose centuries of tradition? Jesus' response is to remind them that the temple which truly matters to God is not a building, but the human being. 
As the psalmist wrote, burnt offerings do not bring God's blessing, but rather humility and repentance. The religious and political leaders only take that as further evidence of Jesus' threat to them. He shows no respect for them or the tradition that they represent, and therefore he must go. We human beings never seem to do well with change, especially when it means a change in circumstances, a difference in circumstances for us as individuals or as peoples. We like to cling to the status quo even when it no longer brings life or well-being to ourselves or those around us. What is familiar is often revered because it is known. That's an illusion of control that comes with it. Yaroslav Pelikan, the great Christian historian, often lamented the struggle that Christians have to embrace change. He wrote, Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition lives in conversation with the past while remembering where we are and when we are and that it is we who have to decide. Traditionalism oppose, supposes that nothing should ever be done for the first time, so all that is needed to resolve any problem is to arrive at the supposedly unanimous testimony of this homogenized tradition. Jesus' words and actions try to push those gathered in the temple from a sense of traditionalism, of doing things the way they've always been done, to a sense of tradition, of being rooted in the wisdom of the past. He will prove prophetic, not just in terms of the resurrection, but in terms of liberating people from a dependence on buildings and ritual systems for connection to God. The temple will be destroyed in just a few decades after the ministry of Jesus, just as it had been destroyed earlier in the history of the Jewish people. They had adapted, and they would adapt again. Jesus holds up that that adaptation is good and holy. God isn't afraid of change, and neither should we be. This last year has taught all of us the truth of Jesus' words and the power behind his actions. We've inherited a sense of traditionalism, not unlike our Jewish ancestors in the faith. Our sense of identity has all too often been centered on our buildings and the rituals that have been handed on to us by previous generations. Well, those buildings are beautiful and those rituals are powerful, but God isn't bound to them or limited by them. We've had to learn how to worship in virtual spaces, and we've had to adapt our liturgies to our current circumstances in the pandemic. For some, it's been a struggle, and for others, it has represented a much-needed reformation. For all of us, though, it has been an important reminder that we can take the best of our tradition and build on it, even in the most difficult of circumstances. You might have heard about the current controversy over the retirement of six books written by Dr. Seuss. The decision to stop publishing those books was made by the foundation that manages the works of Seuss and the company that publishes them. Their reasoning was simple. These six books contain language and images that are disrespectful to certain groups of people. Librarians and teachers have long recognized the problems with Seuss's work. But the decision to pull these six books resulted in a firestorm 
of controversy. Seuss isn't the first author whose work has failed to withstand the test of time, and he won't be the last. Nothing and no one is perfect. We are all limited to some extent by the times and the places in which we live. Whatever we do, whatever we produce is fleeting in the long run. We take the baton that is handed to us and we run the, this race of life as best we can, handing it off, handing off that baton to the next generation, hopefully passing on a world that is a little kinder and more just than the one that we had been given. Some of what we do will be viewed with gratitude by those who come after us. And some of what we do will be rightly criticized. Some will survive and some will not. That's as it should be. What is good and right and just, what is truly of God will endure. The rest can be left behind. Amen.